Hey there, deviants. It's great to be back in your ears. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Dark and Devious. Yes, thank you, Chris, for welcoming everyone back. Um, welcome back to Dark and Devious, everyone. We did miss one week, um, but you know what? That's okay, because life is life, and we are not professionals, uh, <laughs> and there was a holiday, so we were on holiday break. <laughs> right. Uh, there was a whole mess of holidays, so everybody had a little something going on. Yeah, that's true. I think there was Easter... Um, there was Eid for uh, Ramadan. Ooh. And Passover. Yes, Passover happened. And then um, I'm sure there's some some other things we don't even know about. I'm sure, definitely, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, but we, yeah. go on. Oh, I was going to say, we hope everybody, if you celebrated any or all of these uh, festivities, we hope everybody had an enjoyable time and uh that it was satisfying and fulfilling and wonderful yes agreed and all that um but uh while we're away uh there definitely were some uh interesting stories in the news that maybe we can talk about in a future banter um but in our personal lives um chris do you have anything you want to share that happened in the past week uh yeah absolutely uh first of all i wanted to say uh, a welcome to a very special new deviant listener uh, i wanted to say hi to lydia who is one of my co-workers who just started listening so i said i would shout her out um, i'm glad to welcome you into the fold lydia and i hope you'll keep listening to us i mean especially like you get a little dedication here like you can't not continue listening so i really enjoyed uh hearing her feedback it sounded like she was enjoying the show awesome well thank you lydia um i already like you for being a listener but also um uh lydia deets from beetlejuice is like <laughs> a queen and you share a name which means you are just as amazing uh, um, <laughs> she is great i really i like honestly she's top tier <laughs> fabulous um well very good uh welcome lydia um, I don't have any new listeners to welcome on my end, I don't think. Um, however, I do lose track of people that I tell things to and people that say that they're listening. So anyone that is listening on my end, um, hey, I heard you. I appreciate you being here. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later. <laughs> right. I know. Feel free to let us know so we can shout you out. So it's always fun to have the those personal relationships, whether we're, we know you already or you're a new listener, like mm -hmm. let's let's build those relationships. <laughs> um, also, I wanted to share, I think I might have briefly mentioned something like this on a previous episode, but I just finished reading a really great book that was very podcast related because 
Um, the subject matter is kind of dark podcast related. Oh my gosh. And if you hear any weird grunting background noises, it's because my dogs are in the room with me and they are being rambunctious. Are you and... sure that's what's happening? <laughs> they love to play. They are such good buddies. Uh, and our new dog, Cole, really enjoys mm. um, doing the little play bites yes uh, on, yep. on stella oh come on guys uh <laughs> but uh i was going to share with you um this book um it's called i have some questions for you which is um by rebecca mckay m-a-k-k-a-i okay um, she's a phenomenal writer and um yeah it's it's got some dark podcast uh, vibes going on. It's definitely worth a read. Yeah. So if, if anybody is looking for some good dark and devious reading material, I have some questions for you is a great choice. I love a good, you know, it's fiction, right? It is fiction. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's about this woman who's a podcaster and she goes back to the boarding school where her former roommate was murdered years ago and then one of her students wants to do a podcast about the murder and, and everything unfurls from there i kind of feel like that's like stepping on our toes a bit like <laughs> <laughs> um but it's definitely right up our alley i think i think our uh, our listener base if they're they're readers that's right on the money Exactly. That sounds great. Um, I might have to check that out too myself. Um, I do have a few books that I'm working my way through, which your book that you gifted me, The Butcher and the Wren, uh, is my next one to tackle. Um, but I'm reading a book right now as well that is also fiction, not podcast related. But um, I briefly mentioned it before, but it is titled The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Oh, I've um, been wanting to read that one. It looks really good. I am loving it. Um, so the very first day that I read it, I read like I like tore through the first two chapters and probably about like 15 minutes and then I had, had to take a break. But then the next day that I went to read it, I like got through hundreds of pages. Um, oh, nice. It's a very it's a very easy read and it's very um the type of read where it's like you just can't put it down. You want to know what's gonna happen next. Um, my husband got it for me. He recommended that I read it because, um, I was a huge fan of True Blood, uh, the, the series back on uh, HBO series back like mid 2000s into 2000 teens. Um, it's all about vampires in the South. Um, and this book is very, very similar. It's a bunch of Southern ladies, but instead of being like, 20 somethings like kind of ditzy dumb blondes um it's all about like middle-aged housewives who are just kind of bored um oh, so i love that taking a little twist on that yeah um that's it's so very, fun I'm, I'm really really loving it um i haven't got a chance to read it this weekend just because i was busy but i honestly like i look forward to it which makes me happy because as we spoke on the podcast before, you are the literary one. I am the more <laughs> of the TV and film one. Um, but when I do find a book that grabs me, I just, I enjoy it a lot. So 
That's really good. I love that. I'm going to have to pick that one up at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, where did I find time to read 200 pages in one day? Oh, yes, that (laughs) is uh, definitely a good thing to mention because you are usually so busy and um, something tells me you didn't just decide to take a vacation. Well, I always take vacations. I mean, you take plenty of those, but like, (laughs) usually it's like you are working on your goal to see the entire country. Exactly. Et cetera. Uh Uh-huh. Well, this vacation was not my choice. Um, Last weekend, uh, so about actually one week to the day, um, I was house sitting slash dog sitting for um, a client as a side dig that I do. And I was going down the stairs and a super hyperactive, very loving, but very, very energetic dog weaved through my legs, knocked me down, went tumbling, and I broke my ankle. Oh my gosh. Um, (laughs) So I'm in a beautiful boot, uh, fashion statement of the year. Um, And hopefully it's a really, really quick heel. It's a very clean break um that's a relief yeah it's those jagged ones that are right it didn't like shatter um it literally looks like if you were just like cut a carrot in half like it's very very straight not a like jagged edge anywhere um so it should fuse back together on its own um but that said i do get to work from home right now um which is great uh, because not only do i not have to be like hobbling around on crutches oh i also got a really cool knee cart that i like zoom around the shopping store oh yeah i've seen those before that does Uh sound at least like the most it like entertaining part of it is recovery because when we're walking our dog we'll go we'll we'll go up a hill but then when i go down a hill i'm just like i'm like a little kid on a bike i just like stick my my one good leg out and just like ride it down um (laughs) which means i'm probably gonna crash but (laughs) um yeah so i'm glad um, you're finding the in like the joy in it (laughs) uh uh-huh right um but yeah so um think it's a it's a blessing and a curse right i get to relax given i have a broken foot um but with that relaxation comes books comes movies comes lots of time to time to write podcast episodes exactly which i have a few stacked up (laughs) uh thanks to this um but if we don't have anything else to talk about i did write one that um i'm i'm really excited about today uh it is it's a two for one. Oh, um and it's close to home for me personally uh and i'm ready to tell you about it if you're ready to listen i am ready with uh ears perked up okay so a two for one close to home I am absolutely baffled as to what this could be, but I'm sure as soon as you say it, I'm going to be like, oh, of course. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. It could Maybe. be a, it could be um, a mystery even I haven't heard of. Maybe. I don't know. You'll have to tell me. Okay. Um, but so as in a two for one, this is not like two murders or like a bank robbery plus like a kidnapping situation. It's actually two events um, that take place 100 years apart. Um, Wow. Okay. So this is very, very interesting already. mm -hmm. Um, So the first section is definitely more of like 
um, a historical background to the location where the main course takes place. Um, but the historical, historical background um, itself is not so pleasant. Okay, well, let's get into this here. I'm just super eager to find out. And you know, I love a good history, a historic tale. Mm-hmm. So this sounds like it could be right up my alley. Yes, I thought you might like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and what am I talking about, you may ask? I am going to be telling you and our listeners um, about the Starved Rock State Park murders that took place in the 1960s and the background of Starved Rock, Starved Rock State Park itself. Okay, yeah, this is definitely new territory for me. Um, I'm curious to know where Starved Rock State Park even is. Oh, okay. I didn't know you didn't yeah. know about it. No, this one is is totally a surprise to me. Okay, well, as you mentioned, or as I mentioned, um, it's close to home. Mm-hmm. So home, as in where my uh, humble being started of Illinois. Um, before I get into it, though, I just want to shout out my sources ahead of time so I don't forget. Um, all my source information came from... Um, the article Starved Rock State Park Murders by StrangeOutdoors.com. The podcast Killer Queens, The Murders at Starved Rock. And then for historical background and context, there is the article um, titled Upon Starved Rock by AmericanHeritage.com. Very cool. All right. So this sounds like you did some good research. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also relied on my upbringing, too, because I have visited Star Rock State Park myself many times. Okay, wow. So we are really going back to your roots. Mm-hmm. And I even have a family tie into it. Oh, my gosh. This just keeps getting better and better. <laughs> no, it's not like that extreme. Don't get too excited. <laughs> um, but there's a, a little bit of a little bit of tie. So Star Rock State Park is located just southeast of the village of Utica in Deer Park Township, Illinois, and it's along the south bank of the Illinois River. The park has a long history, much of which can be gleaned by visiting Star Rock State Park today. Geologically, the forces of nature exemplified by the warming, cooling, and flooding carved and scraped starved rock into its current shape. The glaciers that had once spread across North America continent uh, like hundreds if not thousands of years ago acted like huge mile-high snowplows pushing debris, rocks, and other material from the northern Canada region into Illinois. This glacier rock slide caused the countless peaks, valleys, and natural monuments seen today around Starved Rock and the surrounding northern Illinois regions. And we can thank the glaciers for the lakes here in Minnesota. That's very, and the Great Lakes. Yeah, it's, you know, those glaciers, where would we be without them? Mm -hmm. We would be dead. (laughs) (laughs) It would also be a lot more boring landscape, I think. For sure. So when the ice disappeared and the water subsided, plants and animals again populated the valley. 
Archaeological excavations at this area reveal that Native Americans had visited, sojourned, and camped on Starved Rock for about 10,000 years prior to current or civilization as uh, we know it, right? Which is a couple hundred years ago. <laughs> a few of these tribes even interred their dead on top of the summit. Most researchers believe that these adaptive and industrious people living in a culture in which iron and steel had yet to be introduced made the best technology of what nature provided, continually adapting and improving methods and tools they employed to hunt, cook and store food, construct, and transportation such as rafts and canoes. You may yeah, I'm always amazed to see what technology... Uh, native people were able to come up with just like no no metal like no iron no steel mm -hmm. no, none of that like there's incredible things that they're able to make and and some of that stuff that still lasts hundreds of years later i know uh speaking of that um a little segue real quick growing up on a farm in central illinois whenever my um dad every spring you till the fields to get ready for planting Mm -hmm. every time you do that it unearths you know what's underneath and the more you unearth it the deeper it gets the more that comes up and it was always kind of like a fun little adventure uh during planting season my siblings and I we would go walk the fields and I never got so lucky to find any but um some of my siblings found like arrowheads and um my dad still has it today he actually found like a whole head of an old axe um wow which is which is like really... very yeah it's very dull by now it's not like sharp it's not a yeah. modern axe but it's like a rock you know with a you can see where it was tied around and where the point would have been um so it's really cool to think about how they made these tools like you said basically out of what they had which was yeah nature nothing else yeah. so cool yeah but anyways back to starved rock you may be wondering how starved rock got such an alluring name the rock takes its name from a 19th century legend that describes the total destruction of the Illinois Native Americans by the tribe's enemies, the Ottawa and the Potawatomi, and in some accounts, the Kickapoo, Miami, and the Winnebago tribes. This destruction was in retaliation for the Illinoisans who murdered the Ottawa chief Pontiac. According to legend, the allies of the slain war chief descended upon the Illinois country where the attacked Illinois Native Americans who lived in the villages located along the Illinois River were pursued and battered, and they were forced to summit Starved Rock where they were surrounded and besieged. Without food or access to water and exposed to the elements, Suffering from the horrors of smallpox brought upon Europeans who had already arrived, the starving and beleaguered Illinois attempted to escape their predicament by climbing down the side of the rock at night, with both the cover of darkness and that of violent thunderstorms. Having descended to the base of the rock, they then were discovered by their enemies, and after a desperate struggle against overwhelming odds, the majority of the Illinoisans were slain. Those Illinoisans who survived managed to climb back up atop the rock only to await their sudden death from starvation, 
and on many accounts, taking their own lives to put an end to their suffering. Oh my gosh, that's brutal. Yeah. And on one such account, two young lovers who could not bear the thought of going on without each other or witnessing the other's death plummeted to their death together off a certain peak in the park. Oh, that's something that, like, that's a real, like, strong image. I feel like there's lots of legends like that, you know, kind of lover's leaps. Yes. Kind of, um, uh, places, I'm sure there's lots of locations that have similar lore. Mm-hmm. And I like that you mentioned Lover's Leap because this lookout where these two lovers took their life is now known as Lover's Leap. Oh. And here's where my family comes into play because, um, you know, as romanticized or not as it is common with these types of places, um, my eldest brother proposed to his now wife at Lover's Leap. Oh. <laughs> and they then had their wedding at Starved Rock State Park. Um, which was a beautiful wedding and it mm -hmm. is a beautiful park. However, <laughs> um, kind of a dark history, a little bit like, yeah, let's get engaged where two people decided to end their lives together. Um, but it's a beautiful view. Yeah. Well, and also it's, it's very much like, you know, Romeo and Juliet is kind of yes. like, uh, like the kind of the, the beauty and all the tragedy, you know, that kind of of thing you know it, it gets like you said it gets romanticized yes very much so i get it so the once powerful tribe of the illinois from this point forward ceased to exist as they were once as a huge nation but only survived in small communal groups throughout modern day illinois wisconsin indiana and some as far as ohio at the same time that the conflict between the Illinois and other tribes was brewing, European settlers were also arriving in the area, hence why some of them were dying of smallpox. Three years after the tragedy, under the instruction of French explorer René Robert Cavalier Serre de la Salle, and a much- I, I give you a, a, a B minus on that pronunciation. Thanks. I've never been to Paris. <laughs> and another much easier named man, Henry Taunty. <laughs> they construct or they started the construction of Fort St. Louis on the rock. Remember, it's surrounded by Illinois rivers, so it'd be a great place for a fort to be. Oh, yeah, that it makes me think of um, Fort Snelling here in Minnesota. Yep. It is very similar where it's like it's up on on the hilltop and it's right where like the rivers converge. Um, and so it's a really prime lookout point. Exactly. Um, so you've really, you know, they say what. Uh, take the high ground is or like something about the high ground, it, like you have an advantage on the higher ground. Something like that. Something like that. I don't know. I've I'm not a military strategist now. Uh, <laughs> I didn't I didn't think so, but <laughs> but I, I there's definitely an advantage to having the high ground. So that was probably a smart move for whoever was making that fort. Mm -hmm. The French. We'll just say the, the French. French. So we don't ruin any more names. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so in 
So while Fort Louis was under construction, uh, LaSalle convinced several Miami sub-tribes from today's northwestern Indiana and southwestern Michigan to relocate to the Illinois River Valley. A band of Shawnee from Ohio Valley and a group of Oto, a trans-Mississippi tribe, also settled in the Illinois Valley. Henry Tonti convinced the Illinois, who had lived near Starred Rock but had been chased from their lands by the Iroquois parties, he convinced them to return to a Native American village of Kaskaskia. LaSalle planned that his fort would become headquarters for trade, where tribesmen could exchange bison hides for items of European manufacture, such as guns, knives, blankets, brass, needles, and other goods. It would also serve as a center for French diplomacy in the region. About 6,000 Illinois Native Americans resettled at the Kaskaskia village in 1683. The village, also known today as the Grand Village of Illinois State Historical Site, is located about a half mile east of Starved Rock. The fort that LaSalle and Tonti built was abandoned by the French in 1691 when the local Indian groups relocated to other locations. So basically, um, they weren't getting any more trade from the Native Americans because the Native Americans moved on. Um, I think it's probably better to say that they were forced on. Um, and so they just closed the base because they're like, okay, there's no one here for us to serve. That same, it seems like such a, like you've already invested so much in this structure and everything, uh, you know, why, why just kind of abandon it? But I suppose if it's not convenient anymore, it's yeah. probably, probably easier to just be like, okay, time to start fresh somewhere new. Right. I mean, the Illinois River is not like a huge transportation river you know it's not like mm -hmm. the ohio that's much larger and definitely not like the mississippi that's going to get a lot more traffic yeah so if the people you're serving are moving on then what else is for you to do by the early 19th century american frontier settlers would arrive and change the entire dynamic of the starved rock area their attitudes concerning the land, waterways, and their exploration of natural resources embodied values that would have seemed utterly foreign to the Native Americans who preceded them. So basically, they were reaping the land instead of appreciating for what it was. Mm -hmm. Today, Starved Rock State Park is one of Illinois' most popular public parks. Purchased by the state of Illinois in 1911, and opened to the public in 1912, it has since grown from about 315 acres to 3,205. That's a pretty substantial state park. It is. It's Illinois' biggest. It includes a nature preserve as well. Besides Starved Rock, the park's attractions include flora and fauna, as well as many canyons and overlooks, one of those overlooks being the aforementioned Lover's Leap. As a state park, Star Rock has been visited by millions of people, many of whom have come to see the bald eagles, view the, view the beautiful Illinois Valley, or simply to relax on holiday. 
The famous bluff itself was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1962. Although fishermen, hunters, birders, hikers, photographers, picnickers, and artists can be seen throughout the park on any given day, every now and then a few curious individuals come to the park to learn about the rock's dark past. Ooh, yes, that's what I want. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, so with that, and a little bit sad, some of those are also Native Americans that just want to learn about what happened to their people. However, despite the beauty and multiple nature offerings that Star Rock Park holds today, it has not always remained a peaceful place following the Illini tribe massacre. Around three centuries later, the flora and fauna of the park would become the scene of a triple homicide and begin a decades-long fight for answers and justice. So, as mentioned, three decades later, so we are now in the year 1960. Now, before we get into this, I always like to talk about the victims, as you know. I like to give mm-hmm. them, you know, their their time to shine, their story, let people know who they were as a person. However, there just was not much information on these victims. Um, so I basically can give you all that's available online, um, whether it's through old articles from the past or from old obitu- obituaries. Um, I just could not find much. But here we are on Monday, March 14th, 1960. On this day, Mildred Lindquist, 50, Lillian Oteen, 50, and Frances Murphy, 47, left their homes in Riverside, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. They made the hour and a half drive to Star Rock State Park for a four-day holiday. Just a group of middle-aged women taking what some would call a girl's getaway. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that they were a little bit older because when you when you kind of introduce the case and think like, oh, it's the 60s, like maybe it's it's some sort of it sounded like something from an episode of American Horror Story where like these college co-eds go off for a girls weekend and then get murdered in at the at the park. But no, no these are just these are uh middle-aged like just everyday people yep these are mothers and some grandmothers um you know just trying to enjoy a weekend away you know just a girl's weekend all three women were very close they were all married to prominent businessmen and they all attended the riverside presbyterian church lillian who had spent the previous few months nursing her husband back to health after a heart attack was especially looking forward to the trip to this beautiful part of Illinois. The ladies arrived at the lodge where they had two rooms booked, and they parked up to the lodge only to unpack their luggage, and shortly after, they checked into the lodge and they had lunch in the dining room. After lunch, they decided to head off for a short hike in the light snow as it was a lovely late winter day. Eventually, after a mile or so of walking, they came to the dead end of St. Louis Canyon, which had steep rocky walls and frozen waterfalls. Lillian took several pictures of the canyon using Francis Murphy's Argus C3 camera. Then, things went terribly wrong. 
as the photos seem to be the last thing that these women saw. That is, and frighteningly, it was the last thing that they saw other than the person or the persons who tragically ended their trip and ultimately their lives. Oh my gosh, that's so spooky. I love it when there's a a last photograph or a, or like a video footage or something like that. Because it just, it feels like it's a little puzzle piece that helps kind of establish the timeline or where, and it's just like a, a really great clue and just makes it really compelling. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, uh, and there are these photos, right? Um, I do have these photos um, that they took together, um, which are really, really like nice to look at. They look so, so happy. And it's really, really like hard to think about like, minutes later something terrible happened Mm -hmm. so that evening Lillian's husband George tried to telephone her at the lodge as she promised to call him but had failed to do so he was told by staff on duty that his wife was not answering and was away from her room that staff member suggested that she may call back in the morning George was a little worried, but then again, it was a different time. There weren't cell phones, there weren't emails. So he went to bed thinking he would hear from his wife in the morning, hoping to hear all about their road trip and what they'd been up to. However, on Tuesday morning, with no phone call, George called the lodge again and asked to speak to his wife for a second time. The hotel receptionist who answered his call, for some reason, I don't know, it could have been like, maybe mistaken sighting of a person, maybe someone trying to just not do their job or like they didn't know what they were doing, so they're trying to cover themselves. But this person mistakenly told George that the three women had been seen at breakfast and were simply out of the lodge at that time. Which also it's like, it seems like it's a pretty popular tourist spot. So I'm, and the ladies had only been there a day. Not even. They arrived Not in even. the afternoon. Uh, so, like, it would have been, like, a day since they checked in. So, what are the odds that the receptionist or the operator, whoever answered the phone, knows everybody by sight? So, he could... she This person could have seen three other women and... Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, just mistaken identity. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, like, I agree. I'm not going to blame fault on that person. Mm-hmm. But this person, the receptionist, said that he would send someone up to Lillian's room to leave a note for her to call him. And so a bellboy from the lodge went up to the room with a card to hang on the doorknob. It's unclear from reports what exactly the message said, but probably was something, you know, a message uh, labeled Lillian, please call your husband George. That night, however, a big winter storm hit the area, and several inches of snow covered the area. The next day, with the fact that George could not get a hold of Lillian concerned him so much, he decided to call the other husbands to see if they'd spoken with their wives. The other men told George that they had not heard from their wives either since the three of them left left from Chicago on March 14th. And at this point, the three of them decided that they would have to call the lodge back immediately. Again, it was George who telephoned the lodge yet again on Wednesday morning, 
but again could not speak to his wife. And at his insistence, employees entered the women's rooms and found that the beds were unmade and that their bags were relatively undisturbed, such as they maybe took out makeup to freshen their faces and then headed out. Hmm. Added to this, their Murphy station wagon was still in the parking lot covered in snow, and it was a clear sign that they had not left Starred Rock Lodge, at least not to their own volition. That's really interesting. And it's it's uh, almost fortuitous that a snowstorm had come along mm-hmm. because it, it showed that that car had been there for a while. Right. Been there for three days, did not move. And that's very interesting. So as soon as George was informed that his wife and the other women were not at the lodge, he called his longtime friend Virgil Peterson who just happened to be the operating director of the Chicago Crime Commission. When Peterson learned of the news, he contacted the state police and other law enforcement agencies in the area, including the LaSalle County Sheriff's Office, which then Sheriff Ray Yutzi of that office began organizing search parties to look for the women, and he accompanied one of the groups that left immediately for the park. So this is one of those situations where you're you're lucky to know someone, right? Um, but unfortunately, knowing someone in this situation came too late. As part of a search for the three women, a group of young men from a nearby youth camp set out on snow-covered trails and rocky mountain terrain on March 16th. Despite the snowstorm the previous night, Weather conditions had deteriorated over the past two days, and searchers were able to walk on narrow, snow- and ice-covered trails. Shortly after the search began, like amazingly very shortly after, a group found the bodies of three women tucked into a cave in an area of the park known as St. Louis Canyon, which again, that's where they last took their photos, Mm-hmm. And it was about a half mile away from the lodge. Wow. Like the fact that they were in it, they were in a cave that raises a lot of questions. And it sounds like, were they actually kind of like literally tucked away? Like it looked like they had been all placed there or I guess though you'll, you'll, there's more to be told. I have a feeling. Yes. I will let you know. Okay. So the women had their skulls smashed in. And there were trails of blood found on the ground and in the snow around their bodies. The three women were lying side by side, partially covered with snow, covered in blood. They were on their backs under a small ledge. So like um, like a little lip that sometimes caves have that stick out. Mm-hmm. Um, Mildred and Lillian had their pants and underwear removed and their clothing had been torn in several places and their coats had been placed between their legs. And then all three women, um, with Frances included, even though she was still clothed, um, had their legs spread open. Oh, this is like a really uh, gruesome in in a different way. You know, it's that um, weird posing. Yeah, which is do. is very specific uh, and intentional. 
it's it's like meant to insult and shame the victim Mm -hmm. it's like it's like meant to humiliate from everything i've learned yeah each of the three women had been beaten viciously on the head and two of the three bodies were tied together with heavy white twine francis the one who was still fully clothed appeared to have been bound the same way except the twine around her ankles was undone a trail of blood leading from the bodies indicated that the bodies had been dragged and positioned under that rock and ledge so to answer your question chris uh they did not go into that cave on their own nor did they go in that to that cave probably alive oh that's just it's so heartbreaking and uh just the intention of this and it's so brutal uh it just makes you wonder what is this killer or killers like what are they trying to you know communicate or by this this horrible act mm-hmm, exactly. what are they what are they trying to to act out or whatever it's uh it sounds like somebody who like this sounds like a case that would be uh an excellent profiling like when you're trying to profile a killer mm-hmm. yeah uh, like a, a case to study for that yeah exactly you hear that all the time like you know this this type of person fits this because all these previous cases was this type of person based on mm-hmm. these behaviors right um but you'll see <laughs> that will be a point of discussion because it's not a clear answer oh Immediately after the women's bodies were found, Chief William Morris called investigators from the Illinois Bureau of Investigations, or the IBI, to help search the cave for clues and determine if any of the victims had been sexually assaulted. The crime scene unfortunately indicated that yes, assault had occurred. Except for the ground of the overhang where the bodies were found, the entire canyon was covered in six inches of snow. Remember, there was a blizzard. So because snow had fallen in the area, this is unfortunate. The investigators disturbed the crime scene with shovels and brooms, damaging potential evidence at the crime scene. Uh, Damn you, snow, (laughs) ruining yet another crime scene Mm -hmm. and i get like what the investigators were trying to do right uh they're trying to find like weapons or more evidence um but at that time still so much was unknown about how to properly secure a crime scene Mm -hmm. um so i don't fault them for that but they definitely probably missed or destroyed some evidence in that process yep however throughout that process binoculars covered in blood were found under the snow so was francis's murphy's argus c3 camera which was found about 10 feet from the bodies and the strap for the camera was broken and the leather case was covered in blood the strap on the device was completely broken which made authorities believe that it had been ripped away from her and the strap snapped in process Subsequent processing of the film from the camera showed that the women had taken several pictures on their hike. 
Most of the images showed them posing in front of the various waterfalls, rocks, and canyons. In all the photos featuring the women, they were all very happy and clearly enjoying what they did not know was their last moments. The last picture on the roll, however, was a triple exposure, meaning that the knob on the top of the camera hadn't been rotated all the way before the photo was taken. The picture showed Francis and Mildred standing in front of a frozen waterfall, but that image was overlaid onto another frame of film at a location close to the cave where their bodies were found. The LaSalle County Sheriff's Office thought that the final picture contained the outline of a man's face and a shadow between the rock face of St. Louis Canyon and a tree trunk behind where Mildred was standing. Oh, that's some spooky stuff right there. It is very spooky, and I've looked at this picture. I cannot determine whether or not it is, uh, like, you know, maybe it's just some dust on the film, or it is an outline. I can't tell. I'm not an expert. But investigators did look into that, and they eventually did rule it out as um, being a photograph of the killer. A short distance. A short distance away from the bodies, LaSalle's County State's Attorney Harland Warren came across a frozen three-foot trim limb that was streaked with blood, and the snow beneath it was covered with blood as well. They also found a long icicle from the cave that appeared to have blood on it. The detectives quickly realized that these were likely the murder weapons. And, you know, when you think of an icicle, I know a lot of people think of just like, oh, a little thing like, you know, the size of like a carrot, right? Um, but Chris, as you know, as well as I, in extreme blizzard conditions, especially around a frozen waterfall, these icicles can weigh up to like 30, 40 pounds. And oh, they can, yeah. They could be that... massive. There, there are definitely some moments where uh, even just the, the icicles hanging off my house in the winter uh, that it's it's like, oh, I better knock these down before they fall down and kill me. Exactly. So a lot of people think ice would just break if you're hitting someone, but that's not <laughs> that's not true. Yeah. Some of these chunks are are pretty solid and can I'm <clears throat> I'm sure be as dense as a hunk of concrete you know mm -hmm, for sure chief william morris told reporters that he believed it would have been very difficult for one person to overpower and kill all three women who had clearly put up a fight as a defensive wound shown mildred lillian and francis were fit for their age and they were not frail in any way so if it was one person it had to be a very, very large, probably man, who was strong enough to overpower three victims at once. Although there was some blood found inside the cave and on the walls, there was not the amount you'd expect to see if the cave was the site where the women had been killed. State police believe that the killer may have murdered the women in a clearing somewhere else in the woods, and when the snowstorm hit, the killer left them there, possibly to be covered, and then return later to drag their bodies into the cave to prevent someone from finding them otherwise. Now, their autopsies were um, pretty quick. 
Um, and again, as they predicted in the cave at the crime scene, during the autopsies, um, sexual assault was confirmed. However, it was noted that it was not um, rape. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's lots of type of assault that can happen. Yeah. Well, and that makes me wonder, that further makes me wonder what type of person this was that did this like is it somebody who maybe is sexually frustrated or something maybe in some way and maybe they are lashing out for some reason some reason or another yeah very possible um but aside from from that evidence that they found and aside from defensive wounds on their hands um, autopsy techs were able to determine that the time of death was shortly after they had lunch at the lodge as that was still remaining in their stomachs. So robbery was ruled out as a motive because uh, the women all had their rings uh, that were on their persons and all their other valuables were left behind in their room. Uh, and as well as that, that expensive camera was found right so robbery was out of the question harland warren was in charge of the investigation but the state police maintained their authority in the case because the murders were committed on park property which is state property the LaSalle county sheriff didn't have any experience in dealing with these types of crimes due to it being a more rural residential type of setting there was a set of keys found on the trail leading to the cave, and there was a sighting of a gray station wagon seen in the area where the women entered the park shortly before they were suspected of being killed. But the keys and this gray station wagon led nowhere. The I'm wondering continu- who's missing their keys then? Uh-huh. I mean, it can be anybody. I lose stuff all the time. <laughs> The continued media coverage of the case kept the pressure on the police officials to make progress, especially, again, because although this is a highly visited state park, it is in a pretty rural area. Virgil Peterson, who was the man Lillian's husband called when he couldn't reach her, you know, the Chicago crime commissioner guy. Mm-hmm. Um... He was friends with all three of the victims' families, actually. And he was very vocal and criticized the LaSalle County Sheriff's Office for not organizing a search sooner for the women when George had called two days in a row. They should have maybe made an attempt to locate the local authorities to ask, you know, just, hey, have you seen these people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they failed to do so. Again, I'm not going to blame anybody because we weren't there. Right. And it's it's hard to say. Uh, I mean. Aren't I aren't there sort of um, guidelines for when you can officially declare somebody missing? And, you know, because like anybody could just be like, oh, I went off on my own for a day and then I came back, especially maybe, if they're over 18. Yeah. Where it's just like sometimes people just want to get away and. You know, if you're not able to find them or get a hold of them for multiple days, then it's more likely that something could be up. Exactly. Possibly. But um, so, yeah, you can't just go declaring people missing just because you can't 
just because they don't answer a phone call. Mm-hmm. It's just sad that in this case, it ended up being a worst case scenario. Yeah, it wasn't three ladies that just wanted to go, you know, get away from their husbands. You know, they yeah. don't want to talk to them. No, they... I wish that was what mm-hmm. happened. Right. So all in all, the total man hours put into solving uh, the three women's murders uh, was about 22,000 hours. And in the 1960s, it was a $65,000 cost. Um, Funds for the local sheriff department were drying up fast. And solving the murders uh, seemed like it was becoming a distant hope. That's when um, investigators took it upon themselves they started using their own money and their own free time to look into this tragedy. Wow, that's, I mean, that's really admirable. I mean, I think, uh, you know, with, I'm sure other things going on too, that the last thing you'd want to do with your free time is more work. Uh, Sounds like they were at least very dedicated to finding answers for these Mm -hmm. victims and their families. Right, And one of those officers mentioned earlier, Harlan Warren, he purchased a microscope and began conducting a study of the twine that had been used to bind the women. It revealed that there were two kinds of twine used, a 12-rope type as well as a 20-rope type, which I looked up these types of twine um, and what I think, emphasize think, um, is the main difference is that it's just the different thickness of the rope right mm-hmm. we have really thin twine and we have thicker twine and what i could find on like home depot and lowe's website um they just appear to be different thickness mm-hmm. well and i assume the thicker the the rope the 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 more holding power it has basically mm-hmm. right deputies bill dumet and wayne hess began a search for this particular twine at the star rock lodge and then in September of 1960, six months after the murders, Warren and his deputies met with the manager of the lodge's kitchen. And within a short time, both kinds of twine were discovered and used for wrapping food within the lodge. Oh, that's interesting. I did not expect that. I thought they were going to like go to the local hardware stores and see who carried that twine or not. But the lodge, which is obviously the closest kind of destination to the scene of the murder, that's a good place to start looking. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they found both types right away, uh, that is very interesting. Right. And I like how you mentioned going and finding like who purchased it. Uh, because the deputies then used the lodge purchasing records to identify um, who made the orders and where those orders came from. It was theorized that the killer either worked at or had access to the park's lodge's kitchen area. But at that point, polygraph tests of all employees at the lodge who were employed at the time of the murders had come up negative. Hmm. Which... I would like to say the polygraphs are often very inaccurate and in my opinion should not be used, but they do hold some value. Right. I think they can maybe give you a little bit of an outline of, you know, 
whether someone is being honest or dishonest, but I, I really don't think it's, it's foolproof of like, oh, this can determine whether someone is for sure telling the truth or not. I mean, I feel like I could just call him as a cucumber under like, get hooked up to a polygraph and be like, my name's Benjamin Franklin. And it, and like, it wouldn't register that I was lying because I would be comfortable, like cool and comfortable under that circumstance. Like, right. And then there's also people like me who have like sky high anxiety. I can be like, my name's Patrick Kahn. And it's like, you're a liar. Yeah. Right. <laughs> You'd be all sweaty. And, <laughs> right. and yeah. So yeah, th there's, there's a lot of question marks there under the use of the polygraph. Well, Warren then hired a specialist from a prominent Chicago firm. And on September 23rd of 1960, the specialist was able to recall all the employees who had worked during the week of the murders back in March. One by one, they came back onto the lodge and entered a small cabin located near the lodge and had to repeat a polygraph test. Most were okay. Most were like, okay, you're a little bit iffy, but you know, you're, you seem like maybe you're a little bit, you know, nervous, such as someone like myself. <laughs> However, a former dishwasher named Chester Otto Weger, who had left the lodge shortly after the murders, was one of these employees and one of these people who raised red flags. When Chester Weger's polygraph test was complete, Warren noticed that the examiner's face had gone pale and lost all emotion. As soon as Wager left the cabin, the technician turned around to Warren and said, that's your man. Wow, he was really confident in that. Yeah. I mean, that's a little like if that's where the story ended and they're like, and then they arrested him based on that alone. Like, that's a little quick to judge well i have good news for you because it's one case where they did some extra footwork okay good but who is chester wager 21 year old which is a baby chester wager was married and had two young children he had worked at the park until that summer when he resigned to go into business with his father as a house painter professor Professor, who am I? Inspector Dummett remembered the man's name from an earlier police report, but investigators had not considered him a suspect at that time. He was at work on March 15th, uh, the day after the woman went missing, with some scratches on his face that appeared to be fresh. At the time, though, Chester told the police that he had accidentally cut himself shaving and during the afternoon of the murders, he was in his room of the basement of his home writing letters to family, which were postmarked around the same time. Hmm. Weger handed over a piece of buckskin jacket that he owned so that some suspicious, what they said were dark stains on it, could be examined, which were confirmed as blood. However, this is a very forest area. It was the 60s. And Wegger himself was a hunter, so it could very easily be animal blood from a fresh kill. 
And I guess at that time, the there probably wasn't the sophisticated technology to be like, okay, well, we can get a sample of this and we can tell what the blood type is or something like that. I'm that seems like technology that would have come much later. Exactly. Um, so after that second polygraph that he went underwent in September, he then went underwent four more polygraph tests, which in a very short amount of time. These results were very misleading. Some he was better at, some he was not. So it seemed like he was under, obviously under a lot of stress. But was that stress because he was didn't want to get pinned for something that he did not do? Or was it stress because he was worried he was going to get caught? Right. I That's not something that you can really parse out where the anxiety is coming from. Mm-hmm. So due to this, these inconsistent polygraph tests, the fact that he had scratches on his face the day after the murder, the fact that he um, had a bloodstained jacket, which they couldn't verify where that blood came from, the police did decide to put him under surveillance. Added to this, the authorities also began to checking into Weger's past and also into some similar crimes in the area. Authorities discovered that roughly six months prior to the murders in Star Rock State Park, back in 1959, two high school seniors on a date in nearby Matheson State Park had been robbed at gunpoint while getting into their car. In that case, the couple reported the crime to authorities and told them they were tied up by a man with twine at gunpoint in the woods and that this man had come out of the shadows at the trailhead parking lot. He robbed them and sexually assaulted the young female. When the victims first went to LaSalle County Sheriff's Office to report this incident, deputies did not believe them and dismissed their story as fiction. Oh my gosh, that's so annoying. Yeah, I hate it. Like, it happens to this day too, um, especially for certain people, especially people of color. But I, it really irks me. If someone goes to the police and say, hey, I was assaulted, I was robbed. What the fuck? Like, police, do your job. Yeah, <laughs> like, and it's, it's not like, uh, you know, especially a case like that where like a sexual assault happens as well that is not i i can imagine that that is not an easy thing to just go and admit especially in 1959 yeah there's a lot of of things going on there and um that would affect you know like emotionally having to share that i mean it's very personal it's you know and and it's not like everybody was really talking about their bodies back then. Exactly. And, and then I there is a a sense of uh of like shame that comes with that, you know, that uh it, it all comes with the territory. And mm -hmm. if you're if you're brave enough to come forward and report that, like absolutely you should be taken seriously. Yep, I agree. So, with Detective Warren's approval, Officer Duma found the young female victim in that case, and with the help of some pictures, 
Without prompting, she identified Chester Wager as her assailant. Wow. Okay, so this is starting to starting to fall into place here. Mm -hmm. However, despite this positive ID, Detective Warren wanted to wait to charge Wager, partially because he was up for re-election and the fact that he might be accused of arresting Wager as a publicity stunt, which I get. However, also, Wager could be a threat to society, so weigh your options. Yeah, it's like, you know, breaks in cases don't necessarily fall neatly mm-hmm. around elections. Right. <laughs> so They often when, don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does not work on anybody else's timeline. So, yeah, like, it's possible if this guy really is your man, he could hurt or kill somebody else Mm -hmm. so for the time being during the entire month of october 1960 police kept what chester wager under 24-hour surveillance as he went to and from work and lived with his wife and their two small children after the election result which uh by the way um warren lost (laughs) so really yeah Oh my god, like, it makes me wonder, like, would he have won if he had announced a big break in this case? I had the same thought. Yeah. But regardless whether he won or lost, on November 16th of 1960, police used the young woman's positive ID um, of the Matheson State Park incident as a means to arrest Weger for the sexual assault and robbery. Deputies were ordered to arrest him, believing Wagner would confess to the crimes of Star Rock State Park. Detective Warren made careful plans with his two deputies about how to interrogate Chester Wagner before confronting him with the murder charges. When officers Hess and Dumet arrived at Wagner's apartment, they told him they were taking him in just to ask a few questions and did not formally charge him on site. But once Wager was in custody, the officers began to question him about the sexual assault of the young woman and then the murders of the three women at Star Rock State Park. They kept him in the interrogation room until past midnight, and then fatigued by all the questions, Wager stopped mid-sentence and asked to see his family. A police car was dispatched to his parents' home in Oglesby, and they were brought in. Dumet and Hess gave Wager a few minutes alone with his family, which not only included his parents, but also his wife and young children. The next day, on November 17th, Deputy Hess stated that when officers stepped out of the back room in the state's attorney's office to show Mr. and Mrs. Wager to the door so that they could go home, they could see that something was bothering Chester. The officer said Chester... Why don't you tell me about it? It's just the two of us here. Just tell me. Which Chester replied, All right. I did it. I got scared. I tried to grab their pocketbook. They fought and I hit them. The pocketbook that Wegger claimed that he was trying to take was actually uh, that camera mentioned before. Oh, which that seems to fit because the strap had been broken and what seems like a struggle Uh uh-huh makes sense right 
The following day, on November 18th, Wager accompanied the state police to St. Louis Canyon for a reenactment of the murders with a large group of newspaper and radio reporters. He said that on the day the three women were in the canyon, he'd been on a mission to rob someone. When he saw them, he attempted to snatch one of their purses, but when he grabbed what he thought was a purse, which was the camera, that strap broke. And then he realized that it was just a camera, and he panicked. So, as a result, he begged the women to go further into the canyon and to give him time to escape. He said the women obliged, and upon this request, walked deeper into the canyon so he could get away without them being able to quickly alert authorities back at the lodge. However, he then apparently decided to continue stalking them after he left them, and near the edge of the canyon, next to the cave, he jumped out of the woods and threatened them again with a large tree limb and told them to move into the cave, after which he tied them up with the twine that he had stolen from the kitchen back at the lodge. He said he originally planned to leave them in the cave, but as he was leaving, Francis broke free and ran after him, threatening him with her binoculars, attempting to strike him on the back of the head. Weger then said he picked up the tree limb and struck Francis on the back of her neck and dragged her body to the mouth of the cave, where Mildred and Lillian were, still bound. However, they were able to stand upright, and he panicked. He said they too came after him and began trying to claw, him, claw his face, which would explain those marks on his face the day after. He realized that the situation was then out of control, and he could not leave any of them alive. He told reporters and police that all three victims begged for their lives as he beat them to death with the frozen trim limb, tree limb and the giant icicle. He said after the attack, he checked all their pulses to ensure that they are dead. Which, um, I don't know about you, Chris, but I feel like if this story were to be the complete truth mm-hmm. and these women agreed to let him followed them in deeper so he had time to get away, who obliged to be taken into this cave, who were calm enough to let him tie them up. I don't think that people as compliant as that, if they saw this person walking away, would all of a sudden retaliate and attack. I I feel like if I was in their shoes, if I was compliant, saying, okay, you can tie me up, you can leave me, I won't tell anybody, I'd probably let that person walk away mm-hmm. and wait till it was safe for me to leave. Yeah. I don't... And also, yeah, I just... The the attitudes that I'm, that I'm getting from the description of these ladies, it does... And, and the fact that um, uh, the defensive wounds... Yes, um, exactly. Like, it sounds like they were gonna, they were gonna kick this guy's butt if they had any last breath left in them, you know, so it, and then there's furthermore, there's the sexual assault piece that it sounds like he's leaving out of his account. Yeah. And 
that's that's not working for me here like something is missing either he's deliberately trying to make it sound less awful or you know or something else is going on here Mm -hmm. i like how you're thinking so during the confession when he was asked why he dragged the bodies under the overhang in st louis canyon Weger said that he had spotted a small airplane flying low over the park. He was afraid that the bodies could be seen from above, so he moved them in order to make sure that they were not. Hmm. Police did follow up uh, with the local small airport and did confirm that a pilot was flying a red and white airplane um, in the area over the park during the afternoon of March 14th. So that adds up. Yeah, that's, I mean, also, I, that's something that's very, you know, easy to corroborate, which true, very because true, because all all flights have to be approved. Mm hmm. Yep. Chester continued to show reporters and police his reenactment of the crime and said before leaving the area, he partially undressed Mildred and Lillian to make the scene appear as if a sexual predator had committed the murders. He did not say that he actually assaulted them. That's that's so weird. Like this whole like BS, like I don't buy this uh, explanation that that he was trying to make it look like a different type of criminal was going after these ladies mm -hmm. uh, as if it was some way to throw them off the scent of him. Right. It's. Like I said, it's not working for me. Yep. He concluded with his recapped men saying that he washed his hands in a scoop of snow, walked back to Star Rock Lodge, and began his dishwashing shift at 5 o'clock p.m. Again, none of the three victims' jewelry or purses have been taken after they were murdered. When police asked Chester to explain why he hadn't robbed the women of those items, if robbery was his intentional motive, mm -hmm. he did not directly answer. He only replied saying, it all started with robbery, but I don't know what I needed the money for. That's so weird. It's like, it It sounds like he was robbing just out of like sheer excitement or, you know. Which like, is a thing that definitely yeah. is a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I could definitely, definitely see that when if like a robbery turned to murder that you're already starting to think of like okay well i can't be caught with any of the items that were on these people because then that would be really easy for for um them to track me down and it's not like i could just like up and leave right away because then i would look suspicious and um and, th and things like jewelry would be really distinct i mean cash maybe less so it would be a little bit harder to track but if it was something like you know if you're a dishwasher and then all of a sudden you have like a bunch of cash on you that right. might look a little suspicious or if you deposited that money in your bank account or something mm -hmm. i guess uh, there there are a lot of things that kind of line up there that could explain that. Mm -hmm. 
However, three days after this recountment of the murder, on November 19th of 1960, Chester Wegger changed his story and said that he was innocent of all the charges. Ugh, this drives me crazy when this happens. <laughs> well, he said that he had been duped and coerced into the so-called confession. He said that officers Dumet and Hess had threatened him with violence and that he had been so scared that he signed the papers. He also said that Officer Dumet had fed him the information about the overhead airplane. Hmm. On November 18th of 1960, a grand jury on LaSalle County indicted Chester for three counts of first-degree murder and eight other felonies related to the 1959 sexual assault and robbery of the high school couple in Matheson State Park. Some of his other felonies were for a purse snatching in another state park and the molestation of a woman and her child. Hmm. So he doesn't really have the best rap record. But there's no proof to show that he's a murderer yet. Chester's trial began on January 20th, 1961, presided over Judge Hoffman with a threat of the death penalty. The new state's attorney, Robert E. Richardson, was the lead prosecutor and was assisted by Anthony Racuglia. Because Richardson and Racuglia had never tried a murder case before, it was suggested that Harland Warren, the man who lost the election, would be a special prosecutor for this case. But Richardson, who had strongly criticized Warren during the election, dismissed the idea. Richardson and Racuglia decided to file charges against Weger for only one of the three murders, Lillian Oting, as in the event of a mistrial or an acquittal, they could still fill, file charges against him for the other killings, which honestly makes sense. Yeah, it's uh, kind of uh, an interesting strategy there. Yeah, I never just do it all at once. Yeah, I never thought of that. Um, and I think it's kind of smart. But at the same time, think about how hard that had to be for Mildred and Francis's families. Mm hmm. Weger's lawyer maintained that his client was innocent and that the police had bungled the investigation from the start. He claimed the state was prejudiced and the prosecutors had no credible physical evidence linking him to the crimes. But the prosecution successfully won a motion to allow the confession as evidence, despite the defense trying multiple times to get it thrown out. However, the defense team successively argued that jurors not be allowed to see all the crime scene photos. Most notably, images of the three women's bodies and their wounds, as because they wanted to know what they thought of the confession rather than just looking at the alarming images. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that there would there would probably be a uh, a strong urge to to probably convict based on the sheer uh horror of the crime scene because it's like well somebody's got to be respond held responsible for this and this is the guy that they've put before us like if he's responsible for that like he's got to pay right mm -hmm. during the trial investigators did admit that the there was an error on pinning the murders on wager due to the blood 
on his jacket. Because again, this is 1960s, uh, there was not uh, the scientific methods used yet or discovered yet to differentiate between animal and human blood. Uh, the only thing they could do was uh, testify that it appeared someone had tried very, very hard to wash the stain out. Now, I don't know about you, but if I have any blood on my clothes, <laughs> human or not, I'm going to try yeah. to wash it out. <laughs> yes. And uh, yeah, especially if it's a jacket that you use all the time. Right. Of course, you'd want to get the blood stain out. And especially a leather jacket. I mean, those are pricey now. I can't imagine how expensive they were back then. Mm -hmm. Chester Wegger was put on the stand for over three hours where he maintained his innocence and claimed the deputies from LaSalle County threatened him into confessing and that something he did not do. He said, quote, the deputy already had a confession already drawn up and he threatened me with a pistol. He told me, he says, you either sign the confession or I'll kill you and say that you tried to escape. Oh, gosh, that's. And of course, you never know if if that's the truth, because right. if, it, if it is the truth, it's absolutely despicable. Like, yes. you know, and and is the absolute worst way to try and get a confession, because, you know, that that's why torture does not is not a very reliable method for getting uh confessions or intelligence or whatever because people will literally say anything just to make the pain stop so uh -huh. you it's like you're shooting yourself in the foot there when yep. because you're not getting good information exactly now we hear um all the time today and even in the past trials for murder that go on for years right mm -hmm. this trial lasted five weeks with no physical evidence, again. The jury deliberated for nearly 10 hours, and on Friday, March 3rd, 1961, they found Ch Chester Weger guilty of Lillian Oting's murder and sentenced him to life in prison. According to Illinois law at the time, he was eligible for parole after serving 20 years of that sentence, and the death penalty, penalty was rejected. Wow, I'm I'm kind of surprised. Like I was kind of on the edge of my seat there because I'm like I could see this going either way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean I think the defense had a very compelling case, the prosecution had a compelling case, mm -hmm. uh, and and they really didn't have anyone else to be honest. Yeah, and it's like is the lack of another suspect, uh, a factor, point, right? Yeah, point to point toward guilt or. You know, could this have been committed by somebody just passing through and, you know, just made their way on to a new, another city in another town or, mm -hmm. or another city in another state and just were, were never heard from again? Yep. I mean, we, we see those all the time. One, you know, either you get your first um, suspect and you, it's for sure that person. Or like you said, uh, there's just no one else. So pin it on them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I do think that the two types of twine that were available at the lodge really does kind of narrow the scope. Yeah, that's true. Uh, 
And I think, I mean, I think that's probably one of the strongest strikes against Chester, but uh, I feel like you need to go a little bit further to prove that for sure he is the one. Um, I do think it's interesting the the woman from the the other state park, um, the young woman who I ID'd him as her attacker and had um, robbed them, uh, definitely does not look good for him. Uh, but then again, same, yeah, go on. Yeah, I was going to say like same area, um, similar MO. Um, that I think ups the likelihood uh, but yeah, this one has really got me in a moral quandary uh, mm -hmm. of of like, man, how do I feel about this case? Was justice served or was this uh, a case that was just bungled from the start? Right. And it's. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know if I I can make up my mind. Well, I still have more information. OK. After Judge Hoffman dismissed the jurors, reporters asked them if they knew that a life sentence in Illinois meant Weger would be eligible for parole in 20 years, which they were not informed by the court before their decision. Chester was imprisoned at the Statesville Penitentiary in Joliet, Illinois, and was denied parole after he was first eligible in 1972. He appealed the conviction and requested a fresh trial as a juror from the first trial actually co-signed the affidavit and suggested that LaSalle County deputies pressured the jury into finding him guilty. This juror was willing to testify that rules of trial procedures were violated in the first trial. The state then announced it was going to try Weger for Francis and Mildred's murders as well. In 1962, the Illinois Supreme Court affirmed the trial's court's decision in the first trial of the murder of Lillian and did not grant him a new trial for her murder. Hmm. In February 1963, LaSalle County was forced to drop all charges in the 1959 rape and robbery in the Matheson State Park, reasons unknown. That is weird. I, I wonder what happened there because I think part of their case uh, in Lillian's murder was the connection between like of that other other case where they positively ID'd him as the attacker. I mean, right. I couldn't find reason why. Uh, one yeah. thing I suspect, though, is that that young woman, um, sometimes once you heal from trauma, you do not want to go back to it. That's it, entirely it could be possible. Either this young woman could not be found. Maybe she was deceased. She could not testify. Or maybe she just did not want to because she had moved on. Right. I could see any of those scenarios being the case. And and yeah, I mean, it's we, like I said, we've seen similar things today where women choose not to go through and testify in the prosecution of somebody that has uh, attacked them just because they don't want to have to go through it all again. Mm -hmm. And it's like, especially like you said, if they have started healing uh, or like moved on with their lives, they don't want to dwell on it anymore. That's really hard to, to be like, 
okay, let's just tear open this wound again and start fresh. Um, And especially in this time period, it would have been very difficult. And to have your name in the, in the official record, um, that would be really hard to deal with. I can imagine. Mm -hmm. Yep. The same year that the charges were dropped in the Matheson uh, State Park with the high school couple, um, LaSalle County dropped the remaining murder indictments of Francis and Mildred, um, only due to the fact that at that time, Illinois State Legislator um, was moving away from the death penalty, right? They wanted to keep him in prison as long as possible because apparently life and sentence um has the potential to keep you in prison longer than the death penalty, which I find interesting. (laughs) Then, 44 years after the murder of Lillian, Mildred, and Francis, in 2004, Chester Wegger's then-attorney attempted to have new DNA testing done on items of evidence. They hoped advancement in DNA technology would prove that the blood on the jacket and the hairs found clutched in one of the victim's hands would not link him to the murders, which I will get to those hairs at the end. Oh, this is a a, a juicy detail. Uh-huh. I left it out on purpose. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, the um, county mishandled these evidences, and they had allowed school groups, civics clubs, and journalists to handle and examine these pieces of evidence while it was in storage over the 43 years since the <sighs> conviction. That's so annoying. It's like evidence should still be treated like. Like evidence. evidence. Yeah. (laughs) Because, yeah. I mean, especially when this was a crime that occurred before DNA technology. Exactly. No one should have been allowed to mess with that. Mm -hmm. Time and time again, in 2007, 2016, and 2018, Chester Wegger applied for parole and was denied each time. When asked if he would be willing to admit to having remorse for the crime he was convicted of in exchange for his freedom, Chester said, I'll stay in prison for the rest of my life to prove my innocence before I'll make any deal with any of you crooked people. And far longer before I admit to killing people, which is something I would never do. Hmm. However, Then, on November 21st, 2019, on his 24th request, the Illinois Prisoner Review Board finally granted parole to Weger by a vote of 9-4, to 58 years after his conviction. On February 21st, 2020, Chester Weger was released from the Pickneyville Correctional Center in Southern Illinois at the age of 80. Remember... He was 21 when tried. Wow. And also, what a time to be released. It was... Oh, well, like, oh my God, that sucks. Here's your freedom, and then COVID happens. Yeah. Innocent or not, I'm sorry. After he was released, he went to Leonard's Ministries, which is a Chicago rehabilitation center for ex-cons. They ruined my life, Chester said shortly after he walked out of prison. They made millions of dollars off of me, off of publicity, by keeping me locked up for 60-some-odd years for something that I never did. Weger said he was looking forward to living the rest of his life with family. It's wonderful just to be able to be out and to be with my friends again, my relatives, he said. 
Weger again was asked by a reporter, why did you not show remorse? Say you did it, even if you didn't, just to get out. Which he replied, why should I feel remorse then if I never killed them? I mean, I feel sorry for the people being dead. I feel sorry for their families, but I would never admit to that I'd done something I never done. So to some, it seems like justice was served. Three innocent women were assaulted and bludgeoned to death, and their killer spent over half of his life behind bars, only to be let out towards what many assume would be his final years. However, as we discussed, was Chester really guilty? Here, I'd like to present you and our listeners with some facts and pieces of evidence that were overlooked or ignored during the trial. Some I have mentioned, some I have not. These facts are simple, and they should not have to be further elaborated on. So here we go. First, again, I'll reiterate that there was never any physical evidence linking Chester to the scene of the crime, no witness ever placing him there. Secondly, there was a blonde hair found on the finger of Francis Murphy's glove, and it was analyzed by Eastman Kodak Company and found to be dissimilar to hair samples taken from Chester, as well as the three victims um, of Mildred, Lillian, and Francis. Thirdly, black hairs were found in the palm of Lillian Otang, those I mentioned earlier. These black hairs were also not Wager's hair color, and it did not match the victims either, as they were all brunettes. Hmm. And lastly, and something I find most convincing of Chester's innocence, was that is it is unlikely that Chester Wegger would be able to overpower and restrain three fit women alone. So, if he could not do it by himself, was he helped by one or more accomplices and he did not want to rat them out in fear of retaliation? Or was his original story of being coerced into a false confection leaving a different person, possibly a different duo or a trio, out and able to harm again. Oh, that's so devastating. The I I can't believe that the the even just the straight up color of the hairs yeah. that were at the scene was totally disregarded. And the fact yes. that there were two different colors. Yeah. And 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 something I was thinking from the start was um to overpower three women who were obviously feisty as hell, um, you would need at least two or three people to two do Two or that. three people or some, like, serious weapons. Yeah. Which, he had a tree run. Yeah, it just doesn't, doesn't add up. And um, there... I, I know I can definitively say that there are at least some other people who never paid for this crime, this crime that they could. I agree. I agree. Like, there had to have been other people. Mm-hmm. And it's just frustrating. Now so much time has gone by the, it's very like the, it's almost guaranteed that these people who actually committed this murder, uh, have probably passed away of natural causes or, you know, died in some other circumstances. Right. And 
I know Ch Chester has like this tiny little like strike against him because of his proximity to everything. Uh, but even if he was guilty, he didn't do it alone. In which case, like the there's some blame to share with somebody, mystery mm -hmm. mystery people. All right. Oh, I'm that's so Chris. frustrating. But I, you're all riled up, and I might get you some more riled up. Yeah. Oh, there's more. Okay. <laughs> you do this. You always jump ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> um, because added to those simple facts, there was a possible deathbed confession. Well before Chester's release in 2020. A Chicago police sergeant, Mark Gibson, submitted an affidavit in 2006 that recounted the confession. It was being used in a court to support a motion for new DNA tests in the Star Rock murder case. In the affidavit, Officer Gibson and his partner were called to Rush St. Luke's Presbyterian Hospital to see a terminally ill patient who wanted to, quote, clear her conscience. Oh, the affidavit said, quote, the woman was lying in a hospital bed. I went over toward her and she grabbed hold of my hand. She indicated that when she was younger, she had been with friends at an Illinois state park when something happened. The woman then told that she was at the park in Utica. Remember, starred rocked Utica mm -hmm. and things got quote, out of hand. She said multiple victims were killed and that they dragged the bodies into a cave covering. Officer Gibson said at that very woman, at that very moment, the woman's daughter cut the interview short, ordered them out of the room and asked them never to return again. Uh, okay, that's weird. Right. The affidavit did not state whether that had been a follow-up or why the confession was not presented in 2006. And the alleged, quote, confession, if you can call it that, was never allowed into court hearings during Weger's petitions for parole in between then and his release in 2020. That is so weird. It's and very weird, very left field. When I was doing research, I did not expect to find that. Yeah. Well, and also it makes you wonder if this, especially if this woman is at the end of her life, like we don't know what kind of state her mind is in. Exactly. Maybe, maybe this is just like some memory that she is clinging on to that she had heard about this case or had been in the area at the time. And, you know, sometimes your brain and like takes in little facts and stuff like that and it gets all twisted up and you misremember things mm -hmm. i completely agree uh, with you yeah and so it could be a case like that but i wish that that woman's daughter hadn't cut her off and just let her tell the whole tale from her perspective and then they would have had a little bit more to go off of to see if it would, if it matched up. If it held up, yeah. But then yeah. again, if, I'm sure you're the same, if your dying parent is all of a sudden saying like, I murdered someone. Do you want to know that? Do you want to know that at the dying days? I mean, and if it, if it were me personally, just because I'm into true crime, I would, I would maybe want to know. But I guess I could see other people not feeling the same. Right. 
but it does kind of hold it does hold some water because she as we mentioned three women one person does not make sense she said she was with friends was one of these friends chester wager Mm. was one of these friends other people we don't know and unfortunately no one will know she took that with her if there was something yeah oh as we mentioned now at the age of chester or now chester at the age of 83 um he wants to be cleared of his innocence. He still claims it to this day. Uh, recently in a Rolling Stone article, he said, I am innocent. I was innocent then. I am innocent now. I want to be vacated. Um, and whether or not Chester is innocent or he's part of a group or not involved at all, that definitely is something that should be known. Mm-hmm. But just as important is to remember that three innocent women Mildred Lindquist Lillian Oteng and Frances Murphy were living their best lives they were just out on a happy weekend getaway and it ended in a horrific way which shattered their families and friends for lives for decades and I'm sure it still probably hurts today as their descendants hear the release of the man that they believed killed their grandmother their Mm -hmm. aunt um, and unfortunately, like I said at the beginning, it is a years long case with what seems like maybe an answer, but also which, which seems like maybe not. Yeah, I, like I said, I don't think I can make up my mind on this one, one way or the other. Uh, the only thing that I know for sure is that there is somebody who got away with it. Yes. And yes. Whether Chester was involved or not. Yeah. There's, there's other still- people. Mm-hmm. that's the only thing I can say for sure about this and you know maybe maybe he's telling the truth he says he didn't kill them maybe he didn't kill him well, I think there's there's a distinct possibility I mean you he's not lying if he was there but did not kill them he was part of a group he's not saying I witnessed <laughs> he's just saying I didn't do it yeah so he might not have been the one to actually and and, you know he had a wife and two young children you know he could have been he could have been not exposing other people just to protect them right Mm -hmm. yeah he had a lot to lose i mean which he did lose yeah um oh this one is so fascinating and i would love it if there was some other kind of bit of information that came out from somebody or some, a written confession or something. I yeah. I always want that in these kind of mystery cases like this. Same, 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 um, same. Which, oh gosh, you know, it happens. Super... Yeah. It does happen. Yeah. I mean, Golden State Killer was caught last year after, what, like 40 years? Um, yeah, wild. They just solved the case of the Sunderland Man, which I don't know about that. It was an unidentified body found in Australia in the 50s, and they solved that last year. Um, Yeah. So hopefully something comes up. I hope so, man. But yes, uh, that is the horrible story of the triple homicide at Starred Rock State Park. And also a brief history of a beautiful place that holds a very dark past. Wow. But that said, um, if you're visiting Illinois and you're a nature enthusiast, I recommend go. It's a beautiful place. Um, Like I said, I've been there many times. I've gone hiking there. 
I've been to wedding there. I've um, so yeah. So I will definitely post pictures of um, the victims themselves, um, and I would also like to post a picture of the park. Just you know, there is some beauty to it. So yeah. If you'd like to check out those uh, photos, please check us out on Facebook or Instagram at Dark and Devious Podcast. Um, if you have a tale that you want us to tell, um, which I've reached out to some of our listeners recently asking, what do you want to hear? Um, you can chat us privately on Facebook or Instagram or email us at darkanddeviouspodcast at gmail.com. Yes, I'd love to hear what, what your burning desires are to hear. Because um, sometimes, I mean, like this one was a total surprise to me. Uh, there are tons of little hidden gems, like like true crime gems like this. This mm-hmm. one was, I mean, I mean, this was a pretty substantial. This was a, a juicy meal of an episode. Um, so uh, I'm sure there are all sorts of little cases like this all over the world that oh, for sure. we have not heard of. So mm-hmm. we're always so, looking for a good tip, you know. Yeah, it's, it's well respected. Yes. Oh my gosh. Great job bringing this one to light. Uh, Super compelling. And I hope everybody listening felt the same. I do too. And until next time. Bye. Bye.